I'm Josie Mitchell, and this is the Grant Magazine podcast, where we speak to authors about their novels, memoirs, story collections, and poetry. Joining me today is Claire Louise Bennett, the author of the books Pond and, more recently, Checkout 19. Claire Louise's debut, Pond, is about a young woman who, having given up on an academic career, moves to a small house in rural Ireland. Her account is solitary and domestic, but somehow electrifying. Checkout 19, her new book, published seven years after the first, tracks the adolescence and early adulthood of a young woman through the lens of the books that have shaped her life. This book is surprising, its shape is unexpected, and it shares with Pond an earthy fascination with bodies, and especially with rhythm. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Claire Louise. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. We're going to be talking about Checkout 19 which came out last year, but we'll also talk a bit about Pond. But I wanted to ask, has there been anything that's, uh, that you've been reading or watching or, I don't know, just come across recently that's, that you've been really into? <laughs> um, well, I met uh, Lynn Tillman last night. Um, uh, we did an event together in uh, Foils. Um, so I've been reading quite a lot of her work and been rereading some of it too. Um, I discovered her work um, about 10 years ago, I think, via via Freeze magazine. Um, and it's it's wonderful that she um, is having her work republished here in the UK uh, after I don't know how long. Um, so I've been really enjoying that. I've, I've read uh, a couple of times now the new one. Well, it was, I think, first published in something like 1987. Um, so it's amazing, really, um, that it's that it's coming out here now. Um, Haunted Houses. Uh, which, Did you say you read it a couple of times? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's just one of those books that you I I I've just felt I needed to read twice because, well, there are there are three characters in it. It follows. Um, the narratives of three, three, they're separate narratives as well, and they never kind of uh, interrelate or anything like that. It's not one of those books. Um, so I have a hard time holding in my head a number of different characters. <laughs> I'm not very good at it. I have a nightmare with, uh, you know, the Russian books, and and that's not helped by the fact that they tend to have, you know, a whole lot of names as well within the one person will have a variety or a variation of of their name. Um, so it helped, it helped me just get a clearer sense, reading back through it again, of uh, really who was who and who they knew and what was going on. And it's a great, it's a wonderful book. Um, it charts the, the lives of these young women as they become adults, I guess, and are trying to find their way in the, in the world. Um, uh, and yeah, I guess I, she wrote it maybe nearly 40 years ago, but it still feels so fresh and 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 relevant um, and contemporary, um, which I don't know. I think it says a lot about her, but it also might say things about, you know, how slow society is to change. Yeah, God, that's so funny. I do think that's so interesting with her work, like how um, how fresh it feels. But what does that mean? 
Well, her prose is uh, is just very exciting, anyhow, and it's very energi- energized or something. She, what I love about it is that there's no. Um, she doesn't really go in for a lot of exposition, you know, like there'll be a name mentioned of somebody or other. And initially you can be a bit like, oh, who's this now? Who's she talking about? And she won't really say, you know, there's no like context or anything like that going on. But I like that, you know, it's a bit like life in any case, you know, you you just meet people, don't you? And you don't really know anything about them. And maybe bit by bit you'll get some sense of them or maybe you won't. Um, so in that sense, it's actually kind of more realistic than than books that are supposed to be in a more realist tradition. But they give you so much detail about who the person is and all the you know using the usual the usual techniques for establishing a character, which I've never really uh, enjoyed too much. So I think I think that that particular uh, aspect of her style is something that really makes it very uh, alive regardless of uh, when she when she wrote it you know she goes her own way as well i think which is another thing that i think about your writing that there's a sort of um fidelity to the way that to something internal perhaps that's an instinct i get with the way that you write that you're not maybe writing like reading another book and being like oh i'll, I'll copy that <laughs> You know, but we'll get to that because I think we'll, it would be. I'd love to maybe start with a reading from Checkout Nineteen, which follows a similar structure actually to what you're saying there about like a sort of young woman, sort of growing up, coming into maturity, similar arc. Um, do we can start by hearing, like, sort of hearing a reading from it, and we can talk a bit about some of the things that come up from it. Sure thing. Yeah. Okay. So this is. Uh... This is from, oh, I don't know, (laughs) the second chapter or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, we'll just get into it. From within the book. Um, I experience every few years an urge to recall this moment and the events that preceded it. Not only to recall it, but to write it down again, again, write down again, how he had discovered something secret in the back pages of my exercise book and asked me if there was more. He wanted more of something that I created, that I had, that I was. I couldn't tell these things apart. It is the attention of a desired man or woman that will blur the lines that distinguish them. Again and again I recall how I wrote stories on loose, unlined sheets of A4 paper my father brought home from work. My handwriting was joined up, just like it is now, but much neater, I should think. I would staple the pages together, and that wouldn't always work out the first time. I've never been very adept with staplers or photocopiers. And then I'd hand my new story to him on a Friday. What were the stories I wrote? Little things. Something about a bus shelter being like a living gallery because of all the things written and drawn all on top of each other across its walls. Something about a boy with AIDS sitting in the library looking out of the window cut off from the playground seeing all the open mouths roaring, roaring and not being able to hear a thing. 
a hated cat disturbing the peace and intensity of a summer afternoon reading in the back garden. The pensive girl in a white vest hears the slamming of brakes and a yowl and believes the cat has been killed and so shimmies smugly down into the sun lounger, deeper into her book. Why so much hatred for the cat? The cat reappears, steps into its saucer of milk and tiptoes off indoors, tail in the air, leaving white paw prints all over the place, as if to say, I am here, I am here, I am here and here, I am not going anywhere. I gave him the stories on a Friday, so they were in his home for three nights and two days, lying there somewhere in his house, absorbing this environment that I could never go to. His Saturdays, his Sundays. Who was he on those days? What clothes did he wear? Where did he sit? Where did he read my stories? Near a long window, on his own, of course, in an armchair, but not a big one, not a soft, squidgy one, something quite elegant and angled towards the window that might be a door, and the garden beyond really was like a jungle full of vines and brambles, rose hips and elderberries, little birds, apples, pears, old trees, and startling ferns. I was with him. I'd done it. I'd crossed over a boundary. I was somewhere I shouldn't be. I was with him, and he was with me. All weekend I felt him with me wherever I went, all day, and at night. He was with me very strongly when I lay in the dark. It was almost as if I was made of him. Writing could do that. Here was a way of reaching someone, of being with them, when you were not and never could be. Here was where we met. Here was where the distinction between us blurred. When he returned my story to me the following Tuesday, the paper was covered with him. Touching it was like touching his skin. My fingertips slowly spread out and up the pages. Here and there in pencil he had written comments, brief and encouraging. They meant nothing to me. But I like to see his handwriting beside mine, sometimes overlapping mine. It was unlined paper. I wrote with a fountain pen. I still do. Mm-mm. <laughs> I think I love hearing you read. There's something so sort of tactile about the right the reading. It makes me want to like wiggle when I'm hearing it. It's great. Um, thank you for reading that. Yeah, so if we stay with that passage for a bit, I wonder whether you could frame it in the in the wider kind of sense of the book, like where is this person? What are the sort of what are the conditions under which she's living in this moment, in a way? Okay, so at this stage, the narrator is, I guess, in her early teens. I'd say she's around 13, 14, and she's at a regular comprehensive school in the southwest of England. Um, it's a working class town that she lives in. 
Um, and she is, um, she, I guess at this stage, she is starting to feel maybe a little bit at odds with maybe what's going on around her. There's a slight irritation going on with uh, the general kind of uh, antics that, that, that are happening at the school. Like um, just prior to this this episode I just read about, she describes actually being in an English lesson and there's just a lot of mucking around going on and she's just kind of getting a bit fed up of it and a bit frustrated because um, she likes English and she likes learn, you know, learning about uh, language and books and so on. So uh, she's get, yeah, she's getting a bit frustrated. So uh, I think, I think maybe that's leading her to sort of maybe withdraw a little bit into her own thoughts, because um, they're just a bit more interesting than anything else that's going on around her, really. And there's this. But then there's a sort of drawing out that's happening in this passage as well, which is with this teacher who's inviting, I guess, the opposite, you know, there's reading, but there's also this invitation to write. There's this sort of other side of this, the coin that she's exploring here. Yeah, I think what's sort of interesting as well is that she's getting frustrated with the whole sort of framework that is school and the school day and the environment and being known within that fixed environment and knowing him in that fixed environment. She wants to do something to rupture that in some sort of way. And she does do something, as we discover. Um, she starts to think about him quite a lot in different contexts. So she does get quite fascinated with this idea of, well, what's he like outside of school? What's he like when he's in his car or what's he like when he's just parked his car and he's crossing the street or he's waiting at the uh, the pedestrian crossing and stuff like that. So she's really trying to imagine him and there's something really thrilling about imagining him uh, outside. A teacher, a teacher outside school. Well, you always used to freak out, didn't you? If you saw a teacher in the supermarket or something, you'd be like, oh my God, there's so, you know, Mr. Whatever. And it's so strange. Yeah. Um, and, and bizarrely, so it's strange how very quickly in life we get very used to seeing people within certain contexts and uh, who they are becomes very much related to that context. And there's something wild then, really uh, bizarrely, about imagining them in a completely different situation. And I suppose on the flip side of that, what's also exciting is she imagines what she'd be like as well if he encountered her somewhere else. You know, and what it, what would that be if they if they in some way encountered each other outside outside of the usual a school routine? One of the things that I love about this early these early sections of the novel is there's this sort of capturing of a younger person's way of witnessing the world. As you say, those sort of moments where you think, "What if what if the teacher has a house?" That would be weird. Like these these moments are like occurring for the first time, um, and another aspect that seems to be occurring for the first time in this, as you're talking about, it's almost like a like desire in a way, or like a sort of, but somehow it's an uncomprehended desire in some way. I was really interested in how, in writing this character, you treated that character with respect in a way because you're writing this sense of unknowingness 
but also this, I feel like there's so much, such an honoring of this person and their way of seeing the world. Does that make any sense? That's quite interesting, but and then I'm wondering what, like, what would be the alternative then? It doesn't feel like you are condescending to this. This doesn't feel sentimentalized or simplified. Okay, yeah, okay. But it's more than that. I feel like I can't quite put it into words. There's a sort of lived inness of that experience and an honoring of something. Yeah, I well, I think that there's just something so, um, cr- you know, crucial about that time, and perhaps to a degree, like I wouldn't say I'm in awe of of her sensitivity and her how close she is, I suppose, to her own perceptions, and but it, there is something there that I, I, yeah, I guess certainly does um, warrant. Um, honouring to to some degree, and certainly, um, certainly doesn't need to be sort of uh, attested to in a kind of um, condescending kind of way, because I feel that she's almost so connected with um, her her impulses and her desires and. That it's um yeah, it just feels like that's the, that's the way it should be written about, really. Um, I love the way that the character talks about menstrual blood. Again, it felt very true to something. There's sort of these later moments where society sort of clarifies how things should be treated. You know, like menstrual blood, that's, you know, maybe shameful or at the very least dirty or you have to be really careful with what you do with it. And there's this sort of, there's this um, way of talking about the oranges and and the the beauty of the colour that's so sort of... Well, yeah, I guess that's it, isn't it? I suppose she's at that point where... You have your own, as a, you know, as a child, I suppose, and um, it's a common thing among parents, isn't it, to sort of exchange funny things that that children have said, their own way of putting things into words, and the, the observations they make. And parents kind of love sharing those and <laughs> find it quite exciting. And then, but then somehow, as you said, as you grow up, it, it's a part of growing up seems to be actually moving away from that and taking on uh, more and more what the received narrative is or um, external ways of of, uh, conceptualizing um, any aspect of of life, whether it's your your period or or love or um, even just something quite sort of mundane, you know. You don't put it in your own words anymore. Your own words start to be replaced by a sort of a general uh, script, I suppose, generally. Um, And that's something that um, I'm very uh, conscious of and, and, uh, and always have been. And as a writer, obviously, you know, 
I I see uh, part of what I do um, to be about always sort of you know in, interrogating that and not and not really taking anything for granted um, in terms of just how we think about certain subjects and they don't even necessarily have to be you know hugely sort of intellectual or but anything really um I wouldn't really take at face at face value um and because I think I I listened to an interview or I heard someone else talking about your book where they said that they thought that it more than remarkably reminded them of their own childhood or they found these thoughts brought up and I found the same thing going back to the teacher thing I remember the moment where I remember um I forget his name I don't know like year five teacher and there was I can remember the epiphany where I thought Mr Fisher has a life (laughs) maybe even you know true horror children like me that are his that he has in his home I couldn't imagine an actual physical house that was beyond my imagination all I could muster for some reason was a ship like a canal boat in my head, I could only imagine, maybe the word Fisher, you know, might have been the reason. I'm like, it, maybe a canal boat, but beyond that, I'm truly lost. And maybe there's something about staying in that sort of strangeness that isn't sort of... It's funny, because actually now I'm thinking about another thing that happens later on in the book where the protagonist says, expresses pride that their accent hasn't been sanded down, you know, that it had been retained. And that being in London sort of creates this general RP sound, you know. A kind of homogenizing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Would you connect that thing, that resistance to homogenizing? Is that a similar thing with, I guess, sounds, words, accents? Yeah, definitely. Um, does that take work? Or does it come natural? In what in what sense? In in my writing or in life? <laughs> It could be both, couldn't it? But maybe they're different. Is it very different with writing and in life? So there's resistance to the sanding down. Let's say that if that's if that's like a mechanism. Well, there's. I mean, there's always there's there's two. I suppose there's two sort of quite um, opposing, you know, impulses. We, on the one hand, there is that sometimes that desire to kind of fit in and be accepted. Um, But then, you know, what is the value of that if you don't feel that you're being yourself, or at least you're not um, speaking your mind and using the words and the voice that feel uh, that feel like you. I mean, so it's it's a strange it's a strange tension. I think um, that I I would imagine runs through most people's lives, really. Um, and there's a strange thing, I think, in a way. I think I think certainly things like social media have really impacted upon how people speak, funnily enough. There's certain sort of idioms and um this is something that I uh I kind of um link to some of uh Michael Bactan's ideas about speech genres and stuff. And we all have different speech genres that we kind of move in and out of. Um, and I guess social media would be 
would be one of them. And I'm not on it because I don't want to get into it. I don't want to get into those kinds of ways of speaking. I find it a bit strange. So I think a bit twee about it, actually. I don't I don't really like it. Um, so, but at the same time, it's a community and everyone kind of, you know, so that it does have its, you know, there's a certain loveliness to it, but then there's also a sort of sense of, I don't know, kind of a claustrophobia or something quite oppressive about it, for me anyway. Um, so... I guess that's more on a personal level, maybe on as a writer, but as you said, yeah, they're certainly certainly linked. Um, I just don't, I just don't want to write in a kind of a dead language in a way. You know, it just feels. Um, and 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 again, I, I guess that's you know has a has a political or um, ethical sort of dimension to it. I made a documentary. Um, a radio documentary about a year or two ago, looking at um, some working class writers. Um, so I I was uh, discussing the work of Tove Ditlifson and Annie Arnaud and uh, Anne Quinn. They're very different writers, um, but what they do have in common is when it comes to to writing and describing direct experience because they are each really kind of writing about yeah direct experiences and, and and why wouldn't they because those experiences haven't been represented too much in literature so I guess that's where the impetus came from so they're each doing that in very different ways but what they're each doing is is doing it um as much as possible in their own words and finding the most precise way they can of, of really getting really getting to what it is that they experience and think and feel without uh, deferring to received ideas and conventional you know literary conventions and so on um, and I, I find that absolutely thrilling uh, to think about and to, and to read and to spend time with yeah, I think those are three. Well, actually, I haven't read yet, haven't yet read the Copenhagen trilogy, but it's by my bed. Might be my next thing I treat myself to, but I agree. Anne Quinn, Annie no can both grab you at the gut, turn the page, don't expect it, boom. Because perhaps for that quality, if it's sort of coming to something themselves, I don't know. But to to bring it back to Checkout 19, I think, yeah, I think it is important, this framework as well of this young woman being in this school. The, the portrait of this school, I think, is very well done and it's one which there aren't a huge amount of opportunities. She isn't necessarily... She isn't necessarily got people gunning for her directing her through life sort of pointing these opportunities out but one thing that she has and maybe this book is exploring is books things that she can read um what would you say i mean it's kind of an obvious question but i'm curious how you'd frame it what would you say these books offer her this character 
Well, I guess, you know, we've just been talking about um, about narratives and and received ideas and so on. And in terms of her life, um, there's, some, there's a sense that it's been pre-written for her. Um, as as it is for many for many people who maybe don't have a lot of social capital um, and don't have so many options really. Um, I mean the the idea. I th- I think if you if you come from a, a working class uh, background is that. Um, you're you're likely to get married quite young, probably, and you'll get a job, and that job doesn't really necessarily have much to do with what you're good at or what you're interested in, or any of those things. Not really. It's it's so you can earn some money and and cover the costs of living, which are, as we know, going up and up all the time. And uh, you probably live. Uh, in in this you know the suburbs in a and kind of newish build and you have a couple of children and so on um and that's very much just sort of there waiting waiting for you to just kind of get on with it and that that phrase is used a lot in the book you know get on with it get on with what you know it's a phrase that comes up when i i mean i can remember it you know, I'd be sort of indecisive or not really sure about what I wanted to do. And there was that sense of, well, when are you going to get on with it? Like, And it's a strange feeling to feel that your life is already sort of scripted for you. And um, you just have to get on board with it. <laughs> so, that, I mean, that's, a, that's another aspect of sort of resisting narrative in, in, a, in a way. It sort of has its basis in, in that. Um, so in the in the books sort of offer different stories as well is that the idea or or that they I sort of maybe what I'm reading that as meaning is that you've got people saying you know these are these are the options and then you're reading in books and people are having these wild very different experiences and it's like oh no there are many more lives yeah that's certainly um that's certainly an element of it for sure um, I mean, she describes, she does, I mean, she describes actually um, that when she was younger, she actually read a lot of books written by men because she wanted to find out about men. <laughs> and she says, you know, the kind of men I was coming into contact with on a regular basis, you know, probably two types of men. And I was already absolutely bored to death of them. You know, so it was, it was that again. It was probably just, you know, someone like her dad probably um, who worked in a trade or it was the other side of it, the shiny asses as, as, as the father used to refer to them or uh, pen pushers or whatever, you know. Um, so there's that sense of, well, what, you know, what else is out there kind of thing. What's the second type of guy like? Well, her dad would refer to them as, yeah, shiny asses. Or pen pushers, you know, they'd be office jobs. Um, the kind of guy that would probably get on the phone to my dad asking him why he didn't keep up with his last mortgage payment or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, was just, the, it was kind of the enemy in a way, or something, you know, um, something like that. Uh, 
So, yeah, and she, she, she's, yeah, craving a different sort of scale of existence um, without knowing quite kind of what or how. Um, so reading certainly enriches her sense of what's out there. But then there's the difficulty then because, you know, it's it opens up certain things. Um, uh, possibilities but then in real terms how is she going to how is she going to achieve that how is she going to shift out of her own situation really so she comes unstuck a couple of times like so for example she when she's a bit older she's doing a levels she's doing a level english literature one of the books they're looking at is a room with a view um and it has it has unexpectedly to a degree quite a strong impact on her um and there's some quite strong literary sort of ideals in that book in terms of the you know the power of beauty and love and truth which interestingly forced associates with with Italy rather than England and the English sensibility which is sort of portrayed as sort of repressed in this sort of Edwardian society and always sort of muddled. We're all in a muddle all the time because we can't ever really be honest about how we feel and what we think. So the great epiphanies occur in Italy because there, you know, you're in an environment that's passionate enough to kind of really deal with these forces of beauty and truth and love. Uh, so, of course, she decides that she has to get over to Italy then, if that's the case. And that will be, that will change everything. You know what I mean? She'll, she'll be seen for what she is. There'll be a kind of a a recognition on a par with, with the kiss that occurs um, in the in the cornfield between George Emerson and Lucy Honeychurch. So she's, yeah, she's very much um, inspired by this by this book um to to go over to Florence with a couple of friends she saves up money that she she earns uh at the supermarket as a checkout girl and um over she goes and she doesn't discover a George Emerson or it's not that even she was looking for those things necessarily manifested in you know a man um but anyway they do meet they do meet a guy in Santa Croce, and it turns out he's from uh, Wooden Bassett, which is a kind of a small market town very near to where she lives and goes to college. And he's a pain in the ass. He's not romantic or poetic. All he's interested in is playing off two market traders because he wants to get himself a really cheap leather jacket. And he's really chuffed with this, and he thinks it's really impressive. And she's just so annoyed. And she keeps kind of looking away and looking towards a statue of, I think, Dante in Santa Croce. I think that's right. I think there was a statue of him there to try and maintain, you know, this this link and this sense of where she is, you know, which is being completely compromised by the presence of this oaf. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of funny, but it's also sort of <laughs> somewhat tragic. And it's a theme that kind of continues throughout the book. This tension between like the literature, the, the world of the literature 
she's reading and the world that she's experiencing. But also things just... And what it what it evokes for her, what it, you know, and her, her efforts, I suppose, to to transcend, you know, her her own sort of quite ordinary circumstances. She's quite often brought back down to earth um, by by the demands of just, you know, normal life. I mean, I remember reading about Anne Quinn sort of going off to New Mexico and that seemed to be a place that absolutely suited her in so many ways as a woman, as a poet, as a consciousness. Um, but, you know, r reality kicks in and she'd have to return to England to earn some money. And she returned and she, I rem remember reading about her working in a uh, a hotel in Mevagissi and she had a dreadful time and she she had a, a breakdown really um yeah that's so, I think I've read that story it's one of the most remarkable representations of a mental breakdown that I've think I've ever read actually yeah it's it's remarkable she, it is it's a it's uh she writes it's brief it's a brief piece she talks about just the environment the chef kind of jumping out at her when she goes for these evening walks along the cliff. You know, her nerves are completely jangled. She's got absolutely no privacy. Um, most of the time she's invisible, but then when she is seen, she's seen in completely the wrong way. I mean, it's just an absolute world apart from what she discovered in uh, New Mexico and the, and the freedom she felt and the recognition she had just... I don't mean professional recognition, but just to be seen for what and who you are. Or to be allowed to sort of be anything. So mm. you're sort of, the way you present is maybe read less coldly and precisely that people sometimes tend to do, I think, in this country. Setting on a certain set of presentations, you know, and then you're sort of boxed and... Very you know. much so. Yeah, very much so. It's really frustrating. <laughs> I was curious because, of course, language and words, syntax, is very structured. You've got to write in a way that creates meaning for someone. How you explore that representation of unraveling, it's very interesting to me. Because I feel that you are managing something that feels very elusive. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I've, I've uh, thought about that and um, kind of I've written about it a little bit about that paradox, I suppose, uh, that, that language is um, often employed to establish um, a cogent meaning and um, the expectations we, we have of it, particularly in written form, is for it to be, um, you know, cohesive and consistent and persuasive and convincing and I guess part of the way I, I do that kind of the unraveling is is by uh, using language in ways that are maybe uh, unexpected or unconventional like it's never experimental for this for the sake of it kind of a bit irritating that that sometimes is um something that's said you know um it's it because it is connected to a sort of an existential um 
exploration or unraveling. And unraveling doesn't mean falling apart. Um, unraveling is simply that the thread, whatever it is, the thread of your life or the thread of your sentence is quite often, you know, knitted up and gathered up in, the, in a particular way. Uh, that we're used to seeing so when you unravel that all you're doing really is sort of straightening out that thread again you're un well yeah you're unraveling it you're un you're getting rid of all that um the knittedness of it I suppose the way it's sort of yeah gathered in um and that doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing or a disturbing thing or a distressing thing it is it is of course, yeah, it is a bit unsettling, smoothing out, you know, and, and just having a, a kind of a, a thread there then. You think, well, what, what am I supposed to do with that now, whether it's a sentence or my life? <laughs> you know. Um, um, but it's, it's, it's about creating then um, just that sense of, I suppose you know space and opportunity for just some just something else, and I I I hope that something that um, occurs in my in my writing and occurs in my in my books that through the unraveling, it's not just a descent into chaos. It's a sort of a there's a sense of this space being created where just something else can happen. Or the reader can just be with it in a in a different way. And um, what what's very important to me is that actually when when they are reading, they are aware that they're reading. I I want I want the reader to be conscious of of reading and not you know being just drawn into the book and forgetting themselves and forgetting their life. No, I want them to be aware of themselves and their life it's really important because I I'm very interested in other people's lives I don't really write about them because <laughs> I don't I wouldn't know how to to be honest with you but I'm conscious of them as I write and I'm conscious of just the richness of other people's experiences um and I want I want them to feel that they're in conversation with what what is going on in my book um and you've you've mentioned certain things that um, memories of of your own that were prompted by reading Checkout Nineteen, and it brought you you know just very close in a in an almost tactile way, and I and I love that I love I love that remembering can happen in different ways. I love that meaning can be made in different ways, and I I think it's exciting as a reader and a writer when we are brought to something in, in an unexpected way. I think that's really, you know, exciting. Um, because so much becomes formulaic um, and quite sentimental, really. And I really don't like that. It's really cloying or something. Um, so... So yeah, it's a tricky, it's a, it's tricky, and I love that challenge. I suppose I do like that. I enjoy that, enjoy that 
challenge of on the one hand you know you're sort of resisting having things sort of tie in together neatly I mean writers have been frustrated with with that um I mentioned Forster Forster was quite critical of A Room with a View because as I said in a way it's looking at model and how English society and English people of that particular class were often very muddled because they weren't really thinking their own thoughts or following their own desires. And um, he said, you know, for a book about muddle, it's really well organised. And it was really annoying him. (laughs) Uh, Because he said it's a very well-made you know, and that notion of the well-made novel, you know. And what's that? what good is that to you if you know well, as he did, um, that life just is not like that at all? Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. I mean, he didn't write another novel after that for, for decades. I think Morris came much, much later. It's interesting. There was a really big gap between books for him. I think he just... I think it was really, really... Um, actually something that he took, yeah, he took quite seriously and just found very, very frustrating. Um, so again, you know, I, I'm I'm conscious I've maybe said it a number of times, but when people kind of think you're being, you know, experimental for the sake of it or just to be different or un- unconventional, it's not. There's, there's much more deeper reasons behind trying to do something formally that goes beyond that you know the well the well made or one thing following on from the next or these are issues to do with with life you've been listening to the grandson magazine podcast please do subscribe if you'd like to hear more of these episodes and give us a rating if you enjoyed this one and if you're keen to find more great writing check out granted.com <laughs>